Genomic data holds a great deal of promise in advancing medical research and for improving treatments of patients, especially when that data can be securely shared and accessed by authorized medical researchers and practitioners. But the collection and sharing of patients' most sensitive medical data also poses many privacy and security risks. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Carlos Bustamante, Professor of Genetics and Biology at Stanford University. Professor Bustamante recently conducted research examining some of the security and privacy risks facing genomic data that is collected and maintained by the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. The Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health, is an international coalition formed to enable the sharing of genomic and clinical data. Professor Busamante will describe what his research looked at, what it found, and his advice for bolstering the protection of genomic data, especially as that data becomes a more integral part of advancing medical research and treatment. Professor Busamante, just to begin, very briefly describe what your research with the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health examined in terms of privacy and security of genomic data. <coughs> Several years ago, the Global Alliance was formed to uh, come up with protocols for sharing genomic data. And one of the key protocols that they, we developed is a means of pinging uh, repositories of genomic data. This is a so-called beacon protocol. Professor, very briefly just define what a beacon is. So a beacon is, is a service, a web service, that uh, returns back a yes or no answer about a particular position in the human genome and whether a collection of genomes has a variant at that position. So, for example, I could ask, have you seen the Delta 508 mutation in the gene CFTR? Well, it turns out that's the gene that underlies susceptibility to cystic fibrosis and Delta 508 is the most common mutation in populations of European descent that breeds, that, you know, underlies cystic fibrosis. So you would know that there was somebody in the database with cystic fibrosis. And the basic idea is if you imagine clinical genetic sites are looking for the genetic basis of rare diseases, in particular rare diseases, and they do a, a large-scale genetic scan. They will often find mutations that are of potential interest and related traits that have never been seen before. That is, they'll, they'll look at the mutations and they'll say, boy, this, this looks like it could be potentially the, the causal mutation underlying the trait. And they will want to sort of send out a signal to other potential types to see if anybody else has seen that mutation. Okay, that's the so-called beacon protocol. So they'll send out this, this thing, and what the Global Alliance did was come up with, with a means of having your database and being able to take in those things, checking to see whether you've seen the mutation, and then sending a signal back, yes, I have or I have not seen the mutation. So it's a, a binary response. And, and that's a very sensible thing to do. It's actually a very elegant solution. It's a API is a you know, very short. It's, it's, it's a really quite elegant solution to the problem. Now, the privacy issue that arises is that the initial protocol is essentially an anonymous thing. And we became interested in the problem of if I had somebody's genome, let's imagine that somebody had shared genetic information with me through 
one of the direct-to-consumer sites, or I had gotten access to a person's genomic profile. Could I use that to figure out which database that person is in, and how many pings would it take to, to do that? And so we wrote down a test of this and started investigating, given the size of the beacon and given the composition of the beacon, how accessible is that information going to be? Because remember, all you're getting is a yes-no response. Yes, I've seen this particular mutation at this site across all the individuals that are in the beacon. And it turns out that roughly for a beacon that has about 1,000 people in it, you'd need somewhere between five and 10,000 pings in order to get a high certainty that the individual whose genome you had was in that database. To put this into perspective, when we do a genome sequence, we often have about 3 million positions in a person's genome that could be used to make such things. So there's certainly plenty of information in an individual's genome, far more information than you need in order to reliably figure out whether they're in a given collection of genomes. So the question arises, is this a big deal? Is this a, a concern? And the answer is, well, it, it depends on who you are, who's had access to this information, and what is the, the beacon that, that is being pinged. Because many of these beacons are for a particular disease. They tend to have smallish numbers of genomes, so on the order of a 1,000. Some only have a 100. So you could imagine a situation where you could find out you know, whether somebody had been a case in a study, say, for autism or for Alzheimer's or for certain kinds of cancer. And, and that could information then tell you and, and in some sense leak that clinical information back to the requester of, of the information. And so if the requester is a bona fide investigator, then that's probably not, not a problem. And, and the beacon protocol was set up so that once you got a positive response and you wanted to get access to actual case-level data, you'd have to send in a formal request. So, so it's sort of a way to send a quick scan, figure out who's got the data that I might need, and then put in a formal request. Now, if it's a nefarious user, then, you know, things could get more complicated, right? And, and you could imagine all sorts of information being leaked that the individual who had given up the, the sample had not expected. What would be the risks to patients? Would there be some risk that, again, some unauthorized person would be able to figure out that that patient might have a sort of a genomic footprint for certain diseases? And what would be the potential harm to that patient? That's a very good question. The potential harm would come from learning a biomedical phenotype that is a trait that the individual has as a side consequence of having them been aggregated into a beacon. So in, in many ways, it's a, it's a bit of a theoretical risk at, at this point. It's important to clarify, you're not going to be leaking genomic information because you're going to start with genomic information. So the, the attack would come from somebody who had access to somebody's DNA, had subsequently sequenced that DNA to get their genome, or had accessed their genomic information through some other third party. Now, given that genomic information, what could you learn about somebody? Well, again, you know, you could learn whether they'd ever been screened for a, a potential hereditary cancer. You could learn whether they were part of an Alzheimer's study. You could learn whether their child or someone related to them has uh, some of these traits, in, in, including if there's an, an autism uh, beacon, for example. And so it, it's a question of 
is that a violation of the person's information? Depends. If the person wanted to share that information and, and was keen to do it and and is part of a, a group that says, look, we want to come together and have investigators study this, then no. And again, you're not going to leak name or other information. The issue is that you could begin to piece together a profile of, of the individual and it, it's really about educating people about the, the potential identifiability from, from genomic data, in, in part because genomic data is not currently classified as, as HIPAA information, right? We, we often share genetic data because snippets of genetic data from a small part of the genome wouldn't be identifiable. Bigger question, given part of your genome, can I figure out other things that you didn't suspect? So with this said, what sorts of preventative measures should be implemented or or bolstered to ensure that only authorized users can access and share this patient information? There are a couple of things that we can do. One is have bigger beacons, right? So we shouldn't be standing up a collection of 10 or 100 genomes because it's very difficult to hide in a crowd of 10 or 100 people. The beacons, for example, that had 70,000 people and there was one that was of that size, boy, it was very hard to figure out whether someone's in that beacon or not, given a couple thousand things. You needed on the order of a couple hundred thousand things in order to do it. So, again, it's theoretically possible, but a much harder problem. So making bigger beacons is, is something that is, is definitely on, on the recommendation. Um, I would say the, the other one, and, and probably the more important one, is that we need an auditable system by which you would you log on as an investigator in order to make these queries. And then, then there's a, even a higher level of information that could be shared. And there are all kinds of protocols for doing that. And so we would highly recommend that the beacons not be anonymous, right? Then you've really created an audible system like you have in many other systems where you, you know who is accessing information and how much information have they accessed. I would say the third is to have a very frank discussion about you know, what are the potential penalties that come about if this information is leaked or, or if you are able to catch somebody in the process of trying to re-identify individuals, right? And as part of the user agreement for these beacons, you shouldn't be trying to figure out an individual's identity from the beacon. And so that's okay, what are the reasonable uh, sort of penalties for doing that? And again, that, that would create, I think, the beginnings of the right infrastructure to do that. And I should say, there currently is, you know, no evidence that anybody has been re-identified from these beacons. The vast majority, nearly every single investigator I've ever met would never want to, you know, use genomic information to re-identify people. There's, there are really very few situations in which that's a sort of permissible question and they focus largely on law enforcement. And so this is more about, as we're building this very large world where we're linking genomic information. We're linking other kinds of identifiable data, wearable data, your Fitbit data, and we're making that accessible. What are the sort of limits to resolution and, and how vulnerable is that information to potential breach? You looked at the privacy and security issues involved with the genomic data at the Global Alliance. But what lessons should other medical research institutes and healthcare organizations that collect, use, or share genomic data learn from your findings? Right. Well, and I should say the Global Alliance was phenomenal to work with. They were extraordinarily responsive. It's an incredible group and includes a very large swath of the genomics community. And so when we raised this question, they were 
very responsive and, and happy to work with us, and, and it was a very positive interaction, and, and we're happy to be sort of a part of that group. I would also point out that the Global Alliance is really largely a protocol-setting organization at, at this point. They, the individual members have collected genomic data, but the Global Alliance as such isn't really a data provider. They are an aggregator and protocol setter. And so really it's down to, as a community, as we develop these protocols and we develop these technologies, what are the potential harms? How do we quantify those potential harms? Because we can't safeguard until we know what those numbers are. And and that was really the spirit of the study. It was much more about, okay, where is this nether region where these things become problems and how we safeguard ourselves as we're building the system. And, you know, in terms of hospital uh, IT infrastructure in terms of research IT infrastructure, there's a whole sort of different world of security around genomic data that we've spent decades or more thinking about, including the, these systems tend to be on the Internet. They are in payment card compliant data centers. I mean, with the actual data stored, is, is, is in a very sort of secure data center location. It's more sort of how we access parts of those data or summaries of those data, which is often what is actually being exposed. You don't expose the actual data, you expose the summary of that data. And what are those summary statistics and how vulnerable are they to potential attacks? So one question, for example, is around uh, wearable data. This is uh, something that uh, to my knowledge, hasn't been uh, sort of deeply explored. If I gave you two minutes of somebody's ticket data, can you figure out who they are? How much do you need? Do you need an hour? Do you need a day? Do you need them in, in different states? And again, those are sort of open questions, but ones that as we begin to build this important world where we're in order linking biomedical data in order to advance knowledge, we've got to think about those potential statistics and, and how they are accessible to the identification. So I guess all these issues that you've brought up also pertain to this sort of ongoing push for more precision medicine. There's a big initiative by the Department of Health and Human Services to advance this. And so this is where all these issues come to play. Absolutely. And I should say, unequivocally, we are ardent supporters of data sharing, right? We think it is the basis by which we are going to improve human health, right? If we do not share data we are going to do far worse harm, okay? So that, that, that's an important statement I want to put out there. We, we must share data. We've got to figure out the most secure ways that we can make this information accessible because it is only by aggregating these large databases that we'll be able to mine and find the correlations and relationships that are predictive of health and disease. So it's not a question of should we share data, it's, how are we going to share these data? And this is why I'm a big supporter of, of research in this space. Because we have to share data, we then need to understand the limits of identifiability and, and how this information sort of manifests itself. And then institute the correct policy. We've known that Internet data is also quite identifiable. If I get information on what websites you look at and I have enough information, I can uniquely identify it. And so there are safeguards in place to prevent that and, and something that the providers have, have thought about. It's likewise if I had, you know, information on some number of policies made, the positively identify you. And so 
there are all these aspects of digital world that we just are exploring as we're building the systems and as we're building the protocols for uh, sharing information that, that, again, is really critical to the advancement of knowledge. The not sharing data is not an acceptable solution. It's more how do we share it, what are the right protocols, what are the risks, and what are the policies that we put in place so that we have the right carrot and stick to prevent unauthorized use. Are there any promising technologies or processes or policies that would improve data from not being easily re-identified once it is de-identified? I think it's always cat and mouse game, isn't it? We, of course, would could always improve on encryption. We could improve on transmission. We could work on far more secure ways of storing the data. But ultimately, you know, clever people will come up with ways to, you know, cut through that. And computation, as it increases, will begin to cut through that. And so, in my opinion, it will ultimately really come down to policy and incentive and penalty. It's really about educating the community, both of investigators and participants, and also putting in place the right law. GINA, uh, which is the law that governs uh, genomic information, prevents health insurers from using your genomic information to deny you insurance. Well, that's a critical piece of legislation. It's phenomenal that's on the book. It doesn't cover everything, though. What about long-term care, disability? How do we handle genomic information in in those contexts? And and ultimately, those are policy decisions. They, you know, aren't things that should be left solely up to to biomedical researchers. Our role is to do biomedical research and use data to identify indicators of, of health and disease and to understand the the limits of data sharing potential and and risk, and then serve that up and have a much broader discussion with many different stakeholders about how we build these systems and, and what is the right use of these data. Thanks, Professor Bustamante. I've been speaking to Professor Carlos Bustamante of Stanford University. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.